Hey guys, this is Wolf Hoffman and you're listening to Sonic Perspectives. Hi everyone and welcome to another interview of Sonic Perspectives. I'm Rodrigo and our guest today is the face of Accept, Mr. Wolf Hoffman. Wolf, great to have you with us. Hey, great to be with you. How are you? Awesome, I'm good. I'm here in Toronto, safe and sound for the time being, so we'll see how that plays out during the yeah, year. Yeah, really. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's talk about the new Accept album, To Me To Die. Uh, I feel it's another high point in your career. Do you feel the same way? Hard to say, but I have a good feeling about it. I uh, feel really good. And now that I've talked to so many people and so many people, journalists and some fans have listened to it, I've got a good feeling. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's always hard to say your, yourself. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, for me, on my first listens, on my first 10 or 15 listens, to be honest with you, it's a high point in Accept's career for sure. But uh, I just learned today that uh, the release date is now January 29th and not January 15th, as previously announced, right? I know. That's a bummer. Yeah, it's, yeah. I think it's got something to do with the uh, pressing plans due to COVID shutdowns. Or I don't know what the story is, but, you know, it's been pushed back for two weeks, unfortunately. Yeah, but, yeah. hey, who cares? Who cares? Yeah. What's another two weeks after all this wait? And <laughs> It's all right. It's all right. We can We can take it. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, 16 albums in, do you still feel the same excitement when a new album comes out? I mean, are you anxious to, to hear the fans' reaction and stuff like that? Or Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it doesn't get easier with time. And I mean, if anything, we'll put almost more effort in albums nowadays than we did in in, in earlier years, maybe. Mm. Uh, just just time-wise and songwriting. I don't know. A lot of it goes into it. Many months of working, and it's always an anxious moment when it gets finally released, and it finally you release that baby to the world, and you see what have, happens. Right. You know, it's it's an exciting time for sure. Yeah, and you recorded in Nashville once again, just like you did mm -hmm. in the last three or four albums, I believe. I think you yeah. feel pretty much at home there already, right? We do, and actually that is home. Uh, I have a studio there, and that's where we usually work. So yeah, mm. it is home. Nice. Mm -hmm. I think it used to be like the mecca of country music, and now it's a mecca for all styles. It, it went through a whole new revamp in the last few, couple of years, right? It Nashville. did. In the yeah. last five to ten years, it's been going through the roof. And yeah. I remember when I moved to Nashville in the late, oh, the early 90s, it was really a sleepy little village, and it was all about country, and there was nobody. I was the only odd guy The only German and the only metal guy in town, it seems like. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> and uh, Andy Snip is once again at the production helm on To Me To Die. And I think mm -hmm. he's been instrumental in getting that crispy guitar sound. Can you tell me how he contributed to the end result this time? Yeah, I mean, Andy's a great guy. And after all these albums, he's almost part of the family. And uh -huh. yeah, what I like about him is he really thinks and acts like a metal fan and an Accept fan. And he's also a guitar player, of course, so he's really good with guitar sounds and guitar riffs. And yeah, um, so I mean, it's, he's, he's great on so many levels. And he, he's also very good at picking out the right songs, I believe. You know, so he's, he's definitely a big help in the whole process and wouldn't want to make an album without him. And I told him that, you know, <laughs> I told him if, he, if he thinks about going on tour with Judas Priest, I'll just have to break his hand. You know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Or wait a few more months. We'll see, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it all, I mean, the weird thing is this, 
we were going to be on tour, everybody, in this last summer. So we didn't really know how this would all play out with the recording schedule. Uh, because we were going, we were scheduled to play summer festivals, and Judas Priest was going to go out for several months, and we had no idea how we would fit in the recording for this album. Right. But um, so we started early, just laying down whatever songs we had, and, and thought, well, we will figure it out later in the year somehow. And then COVID happened, and yeah. nobody went on tour, which meant everybody had the time, but it yeah. also meant. Nobody could travel anymore. So that was a little odd because Andy couldn't come to us to Nashville and we had to have him uh, on board online only, which was odd. But, you know, yeah. we made it work. Yeah. But it was luckily it was only for some songs that so we had to work this way. I see. I think it's changing for everybody, even like offices and corporations and stuff like that. We're, we're learning to work remotely. But uh, given the choice in the future, would you work like with everybody in the same room or are you comfortable with doing yeah. it remotely? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we've never, you know, the last five albums, five albums we've hardly ever been all together at, at the same time. And it's really not very practical because mm -hmm. usually you, you, you concentrate on one or two instruments at the time, you know, and yeah. that's it. It's almost like it, it's not helpful if there's five guys twiddling their thumb. Yeah. <laughs> one one guy is working i don't think it helps anybody we you know uh it's, whenever it's your turn that's when you are in the studio that's how we've worked mm, i see and this is the first time you did an album with martin on bass and also phil on guitars and that's always a delicate scenario because you never know how the dynamic is going to go uh in the yeah. writing process with the new lineup and everything but uh, tell me how it went Yeah, I, I mean, it went surprisingly well. Um, I, like, I, it's the same thing with songwriting. We're never really writing everybody together. But, mm. I mean, I write the majority of the stuff. And I used to work with Peter in the past, and the, the old bass player, quite a lot. And even there, it was always that some somebody had written half a song, and we would pre present it to the other guy, and, and then we would bounce the ball back and forth. And now I was pretty much alone in that and but i asked all the other guys hey if you have any songs please let me hear him please mm. let me see what you got if anything is except worthy and usable i'd like to use it so yeah martin motnik the new bass player he came stepped up to the plate and really delivered a bunch of complete songs a bunch of half finished or good riffs and stuff like that so it was definitely a big help in the songwriting process absolutely Awesome. So now you have three guitars in the lineup. Uh, I only know of Iron Maiden and Leonard Skinner having this kind of formation. Uh, yeah. Do you anticipate any changes in the arrangements of songs live by having three guitars or not? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's not going to change dramatically. Sometimes we're going to be riffing all three on the same riff. Mm. Other times we're going to play more parts from the uh, records, like overdub parts that you normally yeah. couldn't play, you know, with yeah. just two, two guys. And then I think we're just gonna, you know, we're gonna spice it up a little bit. It's not gonna change dramatically. I think it's, it just is a question of why not over yeah. why, you know, it was, he's such a great guitar player and we felt so comfortable with Phil when we toured with him, uh, two years ago during an orchestra tour all through Europe that we felt like we don't want to let this guy go. <laughs> we want him to be part of the team one way or another. And we didn't really want to kick anybody out. So we felt like, why can't we have three guys? You know, what the hell? There's no, there's no law against it. As far as I know. Yeah, of course not. <laughs> But speaking of guitars, heavy, heavy metal police isn't going to yeah. arrest us. <laughs> no, definitely not. No, the more, the better. <laughs> 
tell me about your love for uh, Flying V guitars. I know you were part of a documentary last year about this model, and it's a big part of the visual identity of Accept, for sure, right? Yeah, it always has been. Uh, yeah. Ever since the early 80s, when we started having two Flying Vs in the band, it became somewhat of a… Trademark, uh, yeah. Yeah, trademark or sort of a visual thing that was easy record. And not everybody was doing it, especially back then. Yeah. Heavy, uh, I mean, flying Vs were sort of unusual instruments. It's hard to imagine now because everybody and their sister now plays flying <laughs> Vs in yeah. the metal community. But back then, it was certainly something that was unusual. And that's why we started doing it. And also because it's somewhat of a, I don't know, flashy showman type guitar. Yeah. Because back Back in the early 80s, it was either Les Paul or Strat. There was nothing else, nothing. It wasn't any of those newer companies didn't exist. It was Fender, Fender Strat or Gibson Les Paul. That was it. Yeah. Really, everybody played that. Yeah. Do you remember the last time you didn't play a Flying V on stage or was it never or? Oh, I played a Strat quite frequently. And even during the 90s, I played a Hamer, uh, sort of a Les Paul style guitar for a while. Oh, okay. Right. right. Uh, I don't know. I, I enjoyed it, but I really realized that the, the, I always liked the Fender, for, the Strat, for certain reasons, because it's got a longer scale. Mm. Uh, it, it suits my hands better, and I also like the sounds you get out of a Strat better, but I always like the Flying V for looks right. uh, and, and stage showmanship. So finally, I got this perfect hybrid guitar built by a German company called Framus about six, seven years ago, and it's my own signature model that's really got the best of both worlds, and that's what I've been playing exclusively for the last, I don't know how many years now. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Uh, going to the specifics about uh, the new album, I think Undertaker is almost designed to be sung by the crowd. Did you write it with that in mind, or how did you guys Absolutely. come up with that? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've always been, when I write songs, I always think of the crowd ahead. And I try to come up with easy to remember and uh, ho um, hook lines and, and melody lines that are easy to latch on to. Something that's that's easy to remember, it's catchy and for the crowd to get into. And of, of course, there's a bunch of places like that in that song. Absolutely. So the pre-chorus there, for instance, is yeah. definitely um, sort of a crowd moment, I think. Yeah. I think that from all the songs on this album, this one and I think Overnight Sensation have like staying power to be played many, many years to come in tours that are not to promote this album. That's my feeling anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. And, yeah. You know, we'll probably initially play a few more. Mm -hmm. um, I think we'll probably play the opener, Zombie Apocalypse, and we'll probably play To Mean to Die. I mean, we're, we're going to try a bunch of them initially, and then you're right. After a few years or maybe yeah. in a few years' time, you'll probably only play one or two of each album just because we have so many albums. You know, you can't I know. possibly yeah. play it all, but those those seem to be the catchy ones. You're right. Yeah, and I think Zombie Apocalypse and Overnight Sensation have somewhat of a common theme, right? Zombie Apocalypse is about like a, being addicted to cell phones, and Overnight is more about YouTubers, influencers, yeah. and whatnot, right? So good things to explore in this day and age, right? Yeah, I mean, we use whatever inspiration we can get for songs, you know. I'm always almost grateful when we have a theme or a mm, subject matter that we could write a song about. Because to me, there's nothing worse than having a cool riff, but no idea what the song should be about. That's sometimes, yeah. it's almost painful. You've got this cool riff and you don't know what to do with it until you have the idea, oh, cool title <laughs> and something 
good or interesting to talk about, you know, during in the in the, in the lyrics yeah. content. I see. And I think in the past, your wife contributed a lot to the lyrics, but not so much this time, right? Was it Mark doing yeah. the book of the lyrics uh, on this album? Well, Mark always flashes out the final lyrics, but we always try to give him something to work with, meaning we try to give him a song that, you know, like Overnight Sensation, um, the theme, we, we told him what it what we were thinking of, mm. or what I was thinking of, when, and then, yeah. Uh, so it's it's not just an empty empty back uh, backing track and here here do something with it. It's mm. always usually it's got somewhat of a hook line. It's got a theme, and then he he starts he gets to work on on you know flash you know filling out the verses and the final lyrics. So that's his to do. But the mm. the overall idea for the song is oftentimes already there. I see. But in in, in some <laughs> cases, it's it, in, on this album it worked the opposite way where. For instance, The Undertaker, that was based on the lyrics written by Mark beforehand, which is okay. kind of unusual for us, but even that can happen. Right. Okay. I, I think that uh, having your wife contributing to the band is kind of a delicate position. I mean, you could easily fall into a Yoko Ono scenario. Did you guys ever discuss that, or was that ever in your minds? Or? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's not so much the Yoko Ono, but you, everybody has that sort of spinal tap thing when the girlfriend becomes the manager. Yeah. <laughs> that scene is in, in everybody's mind, but that's never been, I mean, it's, it's been completely different in our case. I mean, Gabby has been an instrumental part of this band, the band history since the early eighties. And, you know, she, out of, again, out of necessity, she started writing some of the lyrics mm -hmm. and, we kept it a secret for a long, long time because we thought, you know, it's somehow uncool if a woman writes songs like Balls to the Wall or the lyrics <laughs> for, you know. Yeah. But it was really out of necessity because we were young, young kids from Germany, couldn't speak the language very well and had basically had no clue and no ideas. And she was well read and had a, had a sort of, a, yeah, she helped us out basically and became, right. it became somewhat of a, a working relationship that worked super well. She's full of ideas and still to this day, she contributes a lot of um, topics and ideas and catchphrases. You know, she, I guess every songwriter has a little sort of sketchbook that we write ideas. When we have an idea in the middle of the night, you write it down and you think, mm -hmm. oh, this could be a song one day. And she has that book and it became somewhat of a habit. So we, we didn't let go of it completely. But now that we have Mark, being an excellent lyricist, he can he does most of the lyrics. But he's 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 grateful and and if, if we come up with good stuff, because you know all we all need inspiration. Yeah, that's the right atti attitude, I would say. But yeah, cool that things worked out. Yeah, uh, yeah. And something that has become a tradition with accept is the use of classical music uh, inside a solo or a lick or a riff. Here and here and yeah. there. Uh, this time around, we hear Beethoven on Symphony of Pain and Vorjak on Samson and Delilah. I think that's oh, very good. Al almost expected at this point, right? Uh, well, I tried to not make it into a formula. Like the last album didn't have any, as far as I remember, and even yeah. the one before, maybe not. Um, I do it whenever it feels right and whenever it fits, it falls in place, basically. Yeah. And I in see. this case, it, it it did, and it worked out fine. And but it's, it you can't force it into the songs. I, I never try to, you know, make it mandatory. Oh, we gotta have a classical element on this album. <laughs> right. It's not. 
it's not how it's supposed to work. And actually, that I'm surprised you caught that uh, Dvorak theme. That's good. A lot of people <laughs> don't. It's good. Thanks. But there's actually that Samson and Delilah theme, the main theme, that Oriental theme, is also a classical piece. That's from this from an opera called Samson and Delilah by Saint Sans, a French composer. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I, that's, I didn't that's catch kind of that. Yeah. It's not as well known as you know some others, like for instance Beethoven. That's probably the you know da, 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 everybody has heard that at some yeah. point or another. Yeah. I think you're writing in not overdoing that stuff and being creative and serving the song, right? I, I guess that's the main goal, right? It, yeah, and it, yeah. I mean, it really happened backwards. Uh, I was working on this idea, Symphony of Pain, for some time, and it was even a contender on one of the previous albums, and it never quite amounted to anything. And I finally had some riffs that I felt good about, and I thought I wanted to revisit that Symphony of Pain idea because mm. I just like the way it sounds, Symphony of Pain. It's like the ultimate yeah. pain or something. I don't know. I just yeah. liked it. And then I thought, like, Symphony, Symphony. Well, if there's ever a, a place to... You know what's the best 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 known symphony in the world is probably Beethoven's symphony, mm -hmm. and I thought it would be so cool if we can manage to put that in that song somehow. And then I came up with that pre-chorus part where it's in, and then you know it, it, I, I, another part during the solo, I revisited it again, and it just all fell in place. Well, right. on that, right. and then we even wrote that whole song about Beethoven's life. So it's it's really yeah. a Beethoven song in the end. Right. Very cool. And I like how you add a change of pace on The Best is Yet to Come. Uh, it's not exactly something new for Accept, but it, it, it breaks down the album into movements, mm. even though it's towards the end, right? Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's I, I have to disagree. I think it's somewhat of an unusual song for us because it's not really a sappy, super slow ballad, but at the same time, it's got a lot of ballad character. Uh, it's sort of more a slower rock song in my mind, but a lot of people call it the ballad and that's fine. But it's definitely a yeah um, sentimental song, and I think Mark has done a fantastic job performing that. Yeah, very positive message too, right? Looking forward to to stuff and not looking backwards. So yeah. Yeah, the lyrics came out great, and this is a song where the message is really close to my heart because I've I've been toying. The best is yet to come was one of those catchphrases that I had on my little list, and it, it really means a lot to me personally because that's sort of my life motto mm -hmm. so i'm glad it worked out as well as it did and that mark really liked the song as much as he did and you know performed it as well and it was one of those songs where we thought yeah let's see how it all shapes up when mark sings it and the band records it because it was intriguing as a demo but we weren't quite sure how it would all shape up mm. because it was somewhat un not a typical must-have song on the list you know yeah But then one, once it was done, I think it turned out to be one of the best ones on the album, oddly enough. It, it's one of my favorites, for sure, yeah. And I think uh, Sucks to Be You is a song that's very appropriate nowadays, with so much division and political views getting in the way of personal relationships, right? Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And uh, I thought Life's a Bitch, a song you released not too long ago, was going to be a part of the album. Can you tell me why that wasn't included? or Because it doesn't fit on any album it doesn't need it to be on this album mm. if we would have been short on songs yeah maybe we'd have but that i don't know we didn't put it on the previous album it was actually a leftover from the blind rage sessions and we didn't feel it had a place on blind rage or the rise of chaos mm. because it's somehow a bouncier happier song and we sort of had it 
didn't quite know what to do with it. And then Nuclear Blast asked us if we had any, yeah, had anything in the vault to release between albums. And that's when we decided, yeah, we still have that Life's a Bitch song. Why don't we release that in between? And then we started writing songs for this new album. And all of a sudden, we had a, more than enough for the album. We didn't feel like it was necessary to re-release Life's a Bitch. I mean, it's already be, be, it's already out there. So yeah. What would be the what would be the point in a way, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, uh, tell me about the album cover. I think it's it's controversial a little bit, but uh, with that mean bionic snake, I like what you guys are going for with that cover. Tell me about that choice. Yeah, we wanted something iconic, simple, easy to remember, easy to read. This time, mm -hmm. the last album cover was more like intricate and digital art, sort of a landscape type deal, the rise of chaos. But on this album, we were longing for something easier and catchier and simpler, iconic, mm. like Balls to the Wall and Metal Heart or the uh, the Bloody Hand from Blood of the Nation, something that fits well on a t-shirt and is easy to, I don't know, something like that. And I think we achieved that. Uh, and again, it was Gabby's idea, my wife's idea to come up with a snake so you know basically you, we had the title we just didn't know how to visually represent it you know too mean to die how what do you put on there you know mm. so it's yeah i think it worked out well because it, you know, it's mean looking snake yeah you know i think it's got something vicious about it it does for sure uh, and uh, it must be a weird feeling to release an album during this pandemic without the chance to promote it straight away um, how did that affect the album as a whole, aside from postponing the, the release date for sure? Yeah, we'll, we'll find out when it's released how it will affect it. Um, I mean, strategically, we could have decided and waited. And that's what some bands do where they say, well, we're not going to release anything until we can tour again. Right. But then you have to ask yourself, well, when is that? Yeah. You know, who knows when? when that is going to be because we're just sitting there and waiting and waiting and that means you could postpone it indefinitely or like i don't know who wants to have an album in the can and let it be let it get cold and just not release it i don't know that didn't seem like an attractive alternative yeah and and just because we can't tour doesn't really mean the fans can't get the album and enjoy the album uh and then you know it doesn't have to coincide i mean it's it makes totally sense if you have an album and then you promote it with a tour or you use the album to promote the tour or vice versa or whatever yeah but when you can't do that then it might be better just to release the album and let the fans enjoy the album without any immediate tour you know yeah so i don't know yeah. it's just unprecedented so we've decided to go this route and we'll see what effect it has Yeah. Whether people will buy more and download it more because they've got nothing else to do and they're all quarantined at home. <laughs> yeah. Or will it just go away because there's no tour? I don't know. I hope not. I think it's a good album. It would be a shame if it would fall under the radar, but I don't think it will. I think fans will appreciate it. I think so, too. But uh, what do you think is going to happen when we're finally allowed to, to have concerts again? I mean, everybody will want to tour at the same time. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's <laughs> going to be quick. It's going to be a stampede. Yeah. It's going to be like the Oklahoma land rush when they, you know, had the, all the, yeah. the, the, the settlers, you know, and the big, you know, they're all yeah. rushing towards their land plot. It's, it's going to be like that when all the bands are finally ready to go on tour. Yeah. My gut feeling says that there's going to be a lot of interesting tour packages because bands will be kind of smart and say, like, maybe accepting Judas Priest or Priest and Maiden, for example, and Saxon will come together and do a joint tour because fans will not have mm -hmm. money to spend on standalone concerts, right? 
Well, don't forget that these things have to be planned years in advance. So it's it you can't really wait until the doors open again and then spontaneously book a tour. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, you got to book it way in advance, and the venues have to be secured, and it's a complicated process. That you know, once it's in place, it's yeah, you can't easily change it. So we'll right. have to wait and see. It might be a gra- My feeling is. It might be a gradual opening. It's, I don't think there's going to be a you know free for all day one day when everybody says okay now everybody go. Uh, yeah. I think there might be some countries already open, some not, and some some bands already go where others are more reluctant. So it might be a gradual thing of it all coming back to life. Yeah, could be. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, mm. on my last question, I'd like to talk again about the, the topic of uh, the best is yet to come. And it's somewhat tied into that, uh, to those lyrics. Mm-hmm. Because uh, one thing I always admired about you is your attitude of, you know, you're always looking forward, not backward. And that's something rare in metal today when many bands are focused on old material and doing like uh, revision tours and playing old material and nothing new. Uh, mm-hmm. But Accept has never done that. Would you consider like playing an album in full uh, from the past or not? Yes, I would, and we've done it, but I don't think it's the best idea. Mm. And here's why. Because, I mean, a live concert is an event, it's entertainment, it's a show, and you want to you wanna have a certain... Um, um, you know, you want to have a strong start and then you want to play the slow songs maybe towards the middle and then you want to finish strong. So there's a certain flow to a concert, I believe. Right. And an album has a different... First of all, an album is usually way shorter than a live show. So that's problem number one. You know, an album is maybe only 60 minutes long and nobody wants to have a 60-minute concert. Everybody wants to have a two-hour concert nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you do that? Do you play two albums back-to-back? And then the other problem is an album is usually got some really strong songs and they're usually right at the beginning so if you play the album the running order of the album it makes for a quite odd experience i think yeah. as far as the running order you know it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to start with the strongest songs and and then let it go sort of peter out towards the end and then you know you've got your filler songs on a lot of these albums that are not necessarily good live songs they're more like studio production songs sometimes so I don't know that it's such a great idea. To me, the live show should be as the strongest of your stuff and it should be geared towards the audience that's there. And an album is an album. I don't know. It's And, and the other question that you had is we've never been focusing much on the back catalog because we didn't want to fall into that category on... I mean, we focus on the back catalog, but we never wanted to be a nostalgia band that, that just lives on of the past because I always wanted to challenge myself and say, well, hell, we've written great songs back then. Why couldn't we do it now? What's what has changed? Nothing. Right. Really. I mean, I'm still here. I can still write songs and, and we can still out there and do them. So why shouldn't we try as much as possible and try to come up with good stuff that's relevant now? I mean, we did it back then. So yeah, it would be just the easy way out to just say, you know, let's just write a mediocre album and nobody wants to hear the new songs anyhow and just let's <laughs> play balls to the wall and just let's play stuff from the old days and that, that'll be fine. Yeah. That would be a half-ass I don't effort. Know. Yeah. yeah, it didn't sound right to me. Completely understand. And Wolf, thank you so much for the interview. Uh, all the best with the new release. Uh, to, to me to die. And the yeah. best is yet to come. You got it. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Right. Thank you so much, man. Take care. All right. You too. Thanks. Bye. 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 
Okay, everyone, thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this interview with Wolf Hoffman of Accept. You can check out this interview on many formats, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Also, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Let's wrap it up with the song The Undertaker from Accept's upcoming album, To Me, To Die. Stay safe and see you next time. Just